You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. It's a joy to be back after two weeks. Thank you for your prayers for us, Josue and myself, as We've been in Brazil the last two weeks, and we have just been overjoyed with seeing the work of the Lord there, but we're grateful to know that you guys have been cared for so well by our elders, and so thanks to our elders for shepherding the flock in our absence, and thanks particularly to to Pastor Brian and Pastor Justin the Greater as they filled the pulpit last two weeks, and so brothers, we're just so thankful for your faithful preaching of God's Word, so thank you for serving the church so well. And it was a joy to be able to preach in Brazil the last two weeks, uh, to worship with the saints there, to see uh, the unity we have in Christ across nations, across Uh, ethnicities, across languages, uh, and it's a joy to worship with those saints, but there is something special about worshiping with your church family, and so I'm just so overjoyed to be back to worship with you, my family, as we open God's Word together. invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13, 2 Samuel chapter 13 and chapter 14. This will be our two chapters for this morning. Over the last week, We all stayed glued to our screens watching the search for the lost Titan submersible that plunged to the depths of the Atlantic Ocean with five souls on board aiming to see the wreckage of the Titanic. And tragically, that wreckage of that submersible, that vehicle was found later this week on the bed of the ocean floor. And it's hard for us to fathom as we think about such events It's hard for us to fathom the amount of pressure that that little submerged vehicle had going down to 12,000 feet beneath the ocean. At the depth of the Titanic, the water puts 6,000 pounds of pressure per inch, and the vehicle tragically imploded on descent. Due to some defect in the engineering, the sub simply could not withstand the amount of pressure. I think examining our own sinful nature is a lot like exploring the bottom of the ocean. The further down we go into its frightening depths, the the sheer pressure can be enough to crush us. It's a dangerous trip to, uh, to explore the human heart. It's one that must be taken with utmost precaution, and yet we can do so within the safe confines of Scripture. The Lord frequently, in his word, gives us a guided tour of the abyss of our depravity. And we are do so, we are guarded by the word of God and the sound refuge of Christ. Because if we explore the depths of our fallen nature without such protection that comes from God's word and God's son, and the sheer brokenness of the fallen world will be enough to crush us. And so, we can only traverse such depths in Christ. Only in Jesus are we safe. Only in Jesus can we explore the depths of our souls. Only in Jesus can we safely know that we will resurface to the air of his mercies. And so we now, in these two chapters, plunge into the abyss and take a tour of it. 
Last time we saw David's horrific fall with his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. And we saw in those chapters, by God's grace, his repentance as the prophet Nathan came and confronted David. And the Lord forgave and restored David, but consequences would remain. The sword would not depart from his house. And so as we pick up in this next chapter, in chapter 13, we see how sin begins to ravage David's family. David's sons will not only repeat the sins of the father, they will escalate the sins of the father. If David's sin with Bathsheba parallels Adam and Eve's fall into sin, the chapters before us parallel the account of Cain and Abel. In the text before us, the Lord gives us a vivid and horrifying picture of our sinful hearts and the brokenness of this fallen world. We will see deceptive scheming, callous indifference, boiling lust, scornful hate, violent rape, helpless victims, aching injustice, vengeful murder, family schism, and so much more. I told you we're plunging into the abyss. And God's word does not shy away from describing the real world with all of its awful evil. Indeed, as we read a text like this, one of our responses should be to abhor sin, sin that ravages this world and, scary enough, slithers within our hearts. Indeed, there is nothing redeemable about these events that we're getting ready to read other than the fact that they cry out for the need that we all have for redemption. And so we pick up in chapter 13 with the introduction of three of David's children, Absalom, Tamar, and Amnon. Let's read it together, starting in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Amnon was the eldest of David's sons and most likely was the prospective heir to the throne. Amnon loved, we're told, his half-sister Tamar. And as we'll find out, his love is nothing but lust. But the text indicates here early on that what attracted Amnon to Tamar is nothing but his sexual interest. She is beautiful, the text tells us. She's a virgin, the text tells us. And there was no possible way for Amnon, notice how the text puts it, to do anything to her. 
Leviticus 18, verse 11, forbade an incestuous marriage to your half-sister. And so Amnon made himself sick with his illicit lusts. The forbidden fantasy of being with his half-sister, conjured up by his imagination, controlled him. It it enslaved him. Amnon had this so-called friend, a, a crafty cousin named Jonadab, who provided Amnon with a plan to make his fantasy a reality. Absalom will feign, excuse me, Amnon will feign an illness. And when David comes to check in on him, he will ask his father to send Tamar to come cook for him and nurse him to health. And with the request coming directly from King David, her father, Tamar will never suspect what might come. And so Amnon manipulates David to leave his daughter vulnerable to his lustful advances. And Amnon enacts the plan. And what we read next is the horrific account of the rape of Tamar. Let's read it together. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Tamar went in obedience to her father to care for her ailing brother. And Amnon, like so many abusers, manipulates the environment in order to facilitate his abuse. The prince sends everyone out of the room except Tamar, and it is only then that the predator reveals his wolfish characteristics and prepares to pounce on his prey. And Amnon grabs her, and he attempts to seduce her. Come, lie with me, my sister. And and Tamar attempts to reason with her brother about the wickedness of such an action. And this wise woman rightly recognizes that, that such an act is outrageous, because not only would this be rape, but this would be incestuous rape, clearly forbidden in God's word. And so she reasons with him. Such a thing is not done in Israel. This is not the way Yahweh's covenanted people act. 
And then she forces him to consider the consequences of such an action, that it would bring shame and ruin upon her life. But then she also attempts to reason for his own sake, that by assaulting her, Amnon would become one of the outrageous fools of Israel. The word for fool is Nabal. Communicates a worthless godlessness, a sort of foolishness. And as the final effort to stop her brother, Tamar suggests that David if he would just ask, would lawfully give her to him as a wife. And even though it was forbidden by the law, I think she's attempting to use this argument here to get out, to get some sort of distance so she can escape from what she fears will soon happen. But Amnon's ears are deafened, deafened to his, her wise reasoning. He would not listen to her, the text says. He becomes more animal than man. He is but a beast, controlled by his hormones rather than his conscience, enslaved to his glands rather than constrained by his brain. And so Amnon uses his strength, and he raped her. Literally, the Hebrew reads, he lay her. This was not a consensual act, but a violent, overpowering, overpowering and forceful taking of this woman. And the act is parallel, parallel in its intensification of David's adultery with Bathsheba. As David took Bathsheba, the language of violence is never used. David took Bathsheba only by the strength of his position, but Amnon took Tamar by the strength of his physicality. And so Amnon's taking of Tamar further exposes the nature of David's sin, while at the same time intensifying it in its atrocity. And as we plumb the depths of Amnon's depravity, this wicked, evil act, his response after the assault bewilders us and yet reveals something about our sinful human nature that ought to terrify us. Let's keep reading in verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother, Absalom, said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Verse 15 shocks me. I don't know if it shocks you. Amnon hated her. Well, said just a little bit, Amnon was in love with her. And, and here it is that after the assault, Amnon's so-called love is exposed for what it really is. Nothing but selfish lust. 
and lust and hate are frequent bedfellows. The pair together like two sides of the same coin. We live in an age where lust masquerades with the verbiage of love. The modern man has made his sexual desires and appetites the essence of his identity and the enactment of those desires as his chief aim and purpose in life. And what we frequently conceal with the word love is nothing other than unabashed animalistic lust that has far more common in hatred than with love. If you've embraced the sexual ethic of our age, think about it. Isn't that exactly what is going on? That when you ask your girlfriend for nude pictures, do you love her or are you lusting after her? Do you have any regard for her honor in that moment? Or when you take the body of another without the lifelong commitment of marriage, are you not acting for your own sake alone, not for the sake of the other individual? Does the man or woman who sits in front of their computer screen with a parade of naked bodies, are they loving those individuals on the screen? Or are they simply a pornographic parade put on for your private pleasure? Friends, see this new sexual ethic for what it really is and have nothing to do with it. It's nothing but the same sort of wicked lust that drove Amnon to rape Tamar. Don't fool yourself. You cannot love those whom you treat as tools for your own pleasure. Lust cannot love others because the object of love when it comes to lust is always the self. And so there is a very, this very clear and simple difference between love and lust. Lust is nothing more than the selfish indulgence of our bodily desires at the expense of others. I'll say that one more time in case you missed it. Lust is nothing more than the selfish indulgence of our bodily desires at the expense of others, while love, true love, biblical love, is the sacrificial, self-denying giving of ourselves for the spiritual good of others. Understand the difference. Amnon twists, perverts God's gift of sex, and he makes it about himself. Sexual intimacy, as God intends it, is a wonderful thing. It's meant to deepen the covenant commitment of the marriage, to bless it with joy and pleasure in the selfless giving of the husband and wife to each other. Sex is a powerful gift that can achieve glorious good as it knits the souls of the married couple together in exquisite intimacy and fruitfulness. But a gift so powerful, twisted, by the perversion of sin and channeled for selfish ends leaves behind a carnage of ravaged souls. It's no wonder then that when outrageous fools like Amnon wield their sexuality, they leave behind a path of destruction of broken lives and broken families. God's gift of sexuality is like a hammer. By it, We can build a marriage. We can build a family. We can do incredible things 
for good, for God's glory, but by that same hammer used with sinful intent, it can be a bludgeon to beat and bruise those around us. Amnon did not love Tamar. He just wanted her body. And after he violated her, he becomes so disgusted with himself that he directs his anger towards Tamar. And Amnon does what so many men do. They bury the guilt of their sexual sin by directing blame and anger upon the women they victimize. Look again at verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon says, get up, go, with the same intensity that he implored Imnar and Tamar to come and to, to lie with me, he now commands her, get up and get out of here. And Tamar, yet again, the sweet, wise, young woman, pleads that he might be reasonable because after raping her, according to the biblical law, his, her brother had a legal responsibility towards her. The law provided protection for women. And if a man seduced an unmarried woman, he had a legal obligation to marry her. And if he raped her, he was not only required to marry her, but he was not permitted to divorce her. Amnon had not only raped her, but now is effectively ruining her life by kicking her out. He now had a legal responsibility to marry her, to provide for her, but now he sends her away. He stole her virginity. He stole her prospects for marriage. He stole away her dream for children. He stole away her financial protection. She is now destitute. And so Tamar pleads, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. And yet, notice again, the sin deafened Amnon would not listen to her. Amnon treats Tamar like a bag of garbage that needs to go out. And so he orders his servant to throw out the woman, bolt the door. I want nothing to do with this woman anymore. And in a gripping image, we see a crying Tamar covering her face in shame, walking away with torn robes that signified her former virginity and with ashes upon her head. And she weeps over the dishonor she suffered. Indeed, she is mourning the death of her life. Amnon had taken away everything from her. And when her brother Absalom discovers her, perhaps it says something about Amnon's reputation that he immediately inquires about the sexual assault. Absalom attempts to comfort her, and he commits to providing financial care and shelter for his sister for the rest of her life, and so Tamar retreats to the privacy of Absalom's household to live out her days in obscurity. She doesn't come back up into the narrative, but this event changes Absalom. It is something he will never forget. He tells Tamar, don't take this to heart. He wants his sister to be free from this burden, to not have to be anxious and worried about it. And as he tells her not to worry, he commits to take it upon his own heart. David's response in verse 21 is shockingly incomplete. When we heard what happened, when David heard about it, all the text says is that he was very angry. And that's it. All David did after hearing this news that his daughter was raped by his son, all that he could do was get a little red in the face and a little hot under the collar. 
He was the king. He was the one placed there by God to execute the justice of God. And so David is mad, but he doesn't exercise his authority to bring justice. Sadly, he does nothing. He acts just like the old priest Eli, who by his passivity enables the sins of his sons. And woe to us if we hear about the sexual abuse of another human person and do nothing. Because this text has raised the topic for us, let me take a moment and clarify what you should do if you know about or are aware of someone being sexually assaulted. The first thing you do, that you must do, is contact the authorities. It's that simple. The Lord has entrusted the sword to the government for a reason, and they have jurisdiction over criminal matters. And it's the first response that we will have as a church if we ever hear of reports of abuse in this church family or outside this church family. Because for far too long, abusers have manipulated the passivity of churches and they've provided unknowingly cover and concealment for ongoing abuse. Such a thing ought not to be done in Christ's church. And abuse in all of its forms will not be tolerated here at Redemption Church. It will be reported to the authorities for investigation. We are committed to the safety of our women and our children. And let me speak a word here to anyone who may currently be a victim of abuse. I hate that I have to live in a world where I have to assume that might be the case. Please, please tell someone. Please tell us. After church, speak to someone in the restroom. Find an elder. Message one of us this afternoon. We will help you. We will provide protection for you. We will walk alongside you. We won't be like David, who just gets mad and does nothing. No. In righteous anger, we will walk alongside you to see justice, to protect you, and to look for help from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because even if you've been victimized by abuse, your life is not over. The Lord Jesus Christ is a refuge for you. And as your abusers may have battered your life to pieces, the Lord Jesus Christ can mend what is broken. He can renew what was taken away. And he can heal that which was bruised. And make no mistake, though his justice against your abusers may be delayed, and they sadly never appear in a human court for accounts, the day of Jesus' judgment is coming. And it will be a fearful thing for any abuser to fall into the hands of a living God. David's failure to bring justice is injustice, and it caused hatred to begin to brew in Absalom's heart. The injustice of what happened, David's unwillingness to do anything, it gnawed at him. His longing for justice became a lust for vengeance. And Absalom patiently waited for a time when he could strike down his brother in hate. Let's read about that in verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, 
your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, well, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with them. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon and as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. And while they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead for Amnon alone is dead. After two years, Absalom plots and schemes his revenge. Again, we see David, his passivity here, his incompetence. He's being, he's being used nothing more as a pawn in the sins of his sons. There is nothing about David in these two chapters that shows decisive, clear, righteous leadership. And so Absalom manipulates his father and he convinces his, son, his father to, to stay home, but to send the sons, including Amnon, to the sheep shearing festival. Now, the last time in Samuel that we were at such a festival, a sheep shearing festival, was back in 1 Samuel 25, where David was disgraced by a man named Nabal. Nabal, if you remember from a moment ago, means fool. Amnon, by his sin, had become an outrageous Nabal, an outrageous fool, as Tamar had warned him. So he dies, like Nabal, filled and merry with wine. But while Abigail, if you remember, restrained David from taking revenge on Nabal, Absalom enacted his revenge, and he struck Amnon and died, and he died. This is going to be a common pattern that we're going to see over the next coming chapters. Absalom is the photo negative of David. He's the mirror inverse image. There are a lot of parallels to their stories. They flee because of the wrath of the king. They take shelter in Gentile territory. They return to Jerusalem. They are both crowned king at Hebron. However, Absalom, along the journey, will make the inverse choice of David, the opposite choice. While David refuses to take revenge and stays his hand, Absalom takes it. And while David will refuse to take the kingdom from Saul, Absalom will actively conspire to take the kingdom away from his father. And so Absalom gets his revenge. And like most vigilantes, Absalom considers himself as the good guy. Right? He's the one achieving the justice. He's the one doing what ought to be done in the midst of an incompetent government named David's government. And so the speech that Absalom gives his men almost sounds like the Lord's word to Joshua. Be strong and courageous before conquering the Canaanites. Absalom had taken it upon himself to execute the justice of God, even though it was not his to execute. 
And in his mind, in Absalom's mind, he is the innocent party. He is the one doing the work of the Lord because his father failed to do it. And so after Amnon's murder, the initial report came to David that that all of his sons were dead at the hands of Absalom. But Jonadab, this crafty figure, shows back up at the scene and gives an accurate report of what happened, even though he seemed not to have even been there. So Absalom killed Amnon alone, and Jonadab's knowledge of what happened perhaps indicates that yet again, he is involved in the plot in some ways. He assisted Amnon in his plot with Tamar, and perhaps he assisted Absalom in his assassination plot. He was a crafty man who enjoyed enabling others in their sin. So at the end of chapter 13, we see that Absalom flees into Gentile territory for three years while David and his sons mourned over Amnon. In verse 39, look at what it says there. We are told that the king longed to go out to Absalom. Now, verse 39 here in the first verse of the next chapter is a little difficult to translate. It doesn't necessarily mean that David wanted to be reconciled with his son, because as we'll see, he doesn't want to be only that he doesn't march out his troops to bring Absalom to justice. David, in his partiality, because it's his son, doesn't hunt him down and bring him to justice. He doesn't force Absalom to come home and to give an account for his crimes. He loved Absalom, like he loved Amnon, but this whole episode has put a massive rift between the father and the son. King David is aging. He's getting older. We don't know exactly when all this happens during David's reign, but it's most likely in the final decade of his 40-year reign as king. (laughs) In chapter 14, we're going to see that Joab will work to force David to reconcile with Absalom. Another schemer is at play here. And his reasons for doing so, getting Absalom back into Jerusalem, is unspecified, but we can take some educated guesses as we look at the text. With David's firstborn son, Amnon, now dead, and his second eldest son, Absalom, now off in exile as a fugitive, the loyal Joab most likely realizes and recognizes that this succession plan, after David dies, is going to get a lot more complicated. Perhaps Solomon is already being discussed at this point as heir to the throne, because 1 Kings will tell us that Joab will not support Solomon's claim to the throne, And first, uh, in addition, if Absalom is being passed over as the eldest living son as king, it makes his rebellion a little, make a little bit more sense. So perhaps Joab is attempting to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem in order to get the eldest living heir reunited with his father so that civil war doesn't break out later. So who knows exactly his reasons? I think those might be the case. But Joab puts his words into a wise woman of Tekoa to go before David in a Nathan-like sort of way and to try to convince him to reconcile with Absalom. And the wise woman executes the plan flawlessly. In fact, she's very skilled. But it's a foolish scheme from the get-go. Joab attempts to replicate the sort of effect the prophet Nathan had on David. In fact, the whole account parallels chapters 11 and 12. Adultery, murder, rebuke. The same thing happens here. Rape, murder, rebuke, right? So the same pattern is at place. But instead, what Joab ends up doing is leading to a halfway reconciliation that actually brings an awkward reunion between the two and further escalates the tensions between the father and the son. 
So for the sake of time, I have to summarize this lengthy and rather complex conversation between David and this wise woman. But there are three stages to the conversation as it develops. At the first stage, as the woman first approaches approaches David with Joab's words in her mouth, the woman presents a case for the king's judgment, similarly as Nathan kind of did. Right? The woman presents her case, and the case is dripped in the language of Cain and Abel. So she's a widow. She has two sons. One son struck the other in a field and ran off. And following the law of Israel, the woman's clan uses the avenger of blood precept to bring the murdering son to justice. So he's unable to return home. So however... If the murder son returned, he would face capital punishment for his crime, and thus her family tree would be killed off. So she pleads, in this rather complex case, right, that David would grant protection for this murderer son to come back home because he's the only living heir. And David grants her request and officiates his protection. And with the case over, this persistent widow actually sticks around, strangely enough, and then further presses the king with another question. And that leads to stage two of the conversation where she questions the king's judgment about Absalom. David had walked into the rhetorical trap, so to speak. So in light of what she just, what David just judged concerning her case, now she begins to question, well, David, you're not being consistent. You're not doing the same thing when it comes to your son. Look at verse 13 of the text. Why, she says, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring the banished one home again. And so she begins to drop the pretense of the conversation, and she gets more direct, and then David begins to discern what's going on. This woman was sent by Joab. And that leads to stage three of the conversation, where David inquires, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman confirms that Joab is the one behind her words, And as he does so, she says in verse 20, Joab has done this in order to change the course of things. So it's at this point that the king begins to speak just directly with Joab, and the king will grant Joab's request to bring the young man Absalom back. Let's read about it in verse 21 of chapter 14. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Joab gets his way by his scheme, but David thwarts his scheme. As he brings Absalom back to Jerusalem, he says, all right, he's back, but I don't want to see him. He needs to live separately, and he is not to come into my presence. Joab underestimates the hostility that David has for his son Absalom. And though Absalom is permitted to return, there is no reconciliation. David refuses reconciliation. So Joab, in all of his scheming, doesn't diffuse the situation, but instead he instigates its escalation. The whole situation is very messy. On the one hand, you could say, well, Absalom was just, he was justified for killing Amnon. 
The guy was never brought to justice. Absalom was doing what the king should have done, and therefore he is innocent. Is Absalom really guilty of murder? And on the other hand, Absalom killed his older brother in the open, assassinating the possible heir to the throne without authority. So David refuses to deal with the complexity of whether Absalom is actually guilty or innocent in this scenario. And the growing gulf between David and Absalom only grows wider once Absalom comes back to Jerusalem. Joab's scheme that he lays with his wise woman will blow up in his face. As sinners, we can understand that sin can put a strain in our relationships. It will, whether it's in our family, among friends, or even within the church. But the worst thing, the worst thing that you can do is to brush such tensions under the rug like they don't exist, pretending as if everything is fine and some sort of compromise halfway reconciliation. No, true reconciliation requires confession, repentance, forgiveness. But David does none of that. (laughs) Instead, he just awkwardly lives in the same city with his son, but has nothing to do with them. A lot of families that live that way, aren't there? And if there is a close relationship in your life that's strained by sin, you must seek true reconciliation, real peace, not some sort of tenuous truce. And it's at this point in the narrative that we're given a description of Absalom. The narrative now shifts to his perspective, and he will be the dominant figure in the coming chapters as he will lead a rebellion against David. And as we see from the description, Absalom was a popular, attractive, and beloved prince. Let's read his description in verse 25. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. For the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. The focus on Absalom's appearance should cause us as veteran readers of First and Second Samuel to get concerned. There was a donkey herdsman named Saul who was attractive and who was a head taller than every other Israelite. Similarly, when Samuel goes to anoint Israel's next king among the sons of Jesse, who's he first attracted to? Well, the eldest, good-appearing, tall stature of Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. That's, that's got to be the king. But the Lord sees, not as man sees. Recurring theme throughout the whole book. And so the focus on Absalom's appearance, particularly on his luscious locks of hair, is not only a description of foreshadowing, but drawing parallel to those who have lost their heads throughout the book. And I think it's a great comfort to know that it's safe to have a bald pastor because long hair should make you suspicious, right? (laughs) But those who have lost their heads in the book have been multiples, right? We have Goliath who lost his head, Saul who lost his head. And with the emphasis on Absalom's head, particularly his hair, draws our attention. And here's another one in that same line of figures, It's a reminder, too, that as the household of Absalom grows along with his popularity, that we are given his children, but we aren't given the names of his sons. In fact, we're just given the name of his one daughter, who he named Tamar. 
It's a reminder that the violation of his sister lurks behind the events that will soon be unfolding in the text. But as Absalom returns to Jerusalem, he finds himself irritated by David's disregard. Why is he ignoring me? Why why did I come back home to Jerusalem at Joab's request only to have my father shun me like a criminal? And so he's frustrated. And like a lot of neglected sons, he seeks to get his father's attention. Let's read about it in verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab and to send him to the king, and Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. After two years in Jerusalem, Absalom begins to pester Joab for a meeting. However, Joab keeps putting him off, perhaps unwilling to get in the middle of a messy family affair, which is a little bit ironic considering he instigated the whole family reunion. So Absalom finds a way to get Joab's attention. (laughs) He tells his servants, go set Joab's barley field on fire. That's got to get his attention. And the burning field anticipates just what is about to come because Absalom will be a match that will burn the field of David's kingdom. The kingdom is about to be set ablaze. But the smoking barley gets Absalom, the audience with Joab that he wants, and demands that Joab facilitate a face-to-face meeting with the king. Because Absalom wants clarity. Dad, if you want me here, you must think I'm innocent. And if I'm innocent, why are you treating me like a criminal? And so Absalom believes he is innocent, that he, he's done what is right. But yet his father keeps treating him like he's guilty. It it's, doesn't make any sense to him. And so Joab arranges the meeting. And what we see is a very formal and a very superficial reconciliation. This is not a reunion between father and son, but father and servant or king and servant. The, the animosity continues to brew between the father and the son. It's been doing so for years, and it's only a matter of time, as we'll see next chapter, before the popular young Absalom makes his bid to oust his father, his old and competent father. And so the last few chapters have taken us over the last 10 years of David's reign. 10 years ago, David committed adultery and murder. Around seven years ago, Amnon raped Tamar. Five years ago, Amnon killed, uh, Absalom killed Amnon. And two years ago, Absalom returned to Jerusalem. And so the turmoil in David's house is only getting intenser and, and worse over the last 10 years, and it's beginning to boil over. The judgment of God is coming upon David, and soon the sword will divide his house. All the wickedness, all the evil, all the deceit, all the abuse, all the pain that we have seen in our text today is a direct consequence of David's sins. 
And as we read this story of human brokenness, family trauma, and destructive sins, we ask ourselves, where is God's grace in the midst of a story like this? Our young bright star from Bethlehem, the God-trusting giant slayer, is aging into an inept and incompetent father and king. And as we look at the mess of David's house, we're left scratching our heads a little bit, aren't we? Didn't God promise to bring his blessing for the world through David's family? And how will God's kingdom come through David's children? I mean, just look at his sons. Is the hope for the world Amnon? Is it Absalom? These sons are not only repeating the sins of the father, but they do them in even more vile and disgusting ways. The rest of the Old Testament wrestles with this very question that we're asking ourselves as we study this text. From generation to generation after David, we wonder, how is God going to do this? How will God bring his forever king, the serpent crusher, how is it going to come through David's family? It's a hot mess. And as David dies, that's what we get. Bumbling king after bumbling king before Judah is eventually carted off into Babylonian exile. And yet, and yet, in all the mess, God's promise remains. God's forever king is coming, and he will come through David's line, but he will not come with David's nature. And here is why the doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God is so significant. Jesus is the biological son of David, but yet he is conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit. Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant and its promises without taking on David's sinful nature. Looking at this text should cause us to experience all the brokenness in the world. It raises up so many emotions, so many feelings, even trauma that you you yourself may have experienced in your own families. And perhaps you've had your share of brokenness. We've gone to the abyss. Perhaps, like Amnon, you've given yourself to your sinful lusts and frequently act more like an animal than a man. Perhaps, like Jonadab, you enable others in their sin and encourage them in their depraved longings and desires. Or perhaps, like Tamar, you've been sinned against in egregious, horrific, and abusive ways. Perhaps, like Absalom, You sin by taking justice into your own hands, letting bitterness fester and plotting revenge. Perhaps like Joab, you work to manipulate resolution and manufacture peace only to have things keep getting worse. And perhaps like David, you sin by omission, failing to act when you ought to act, creating tension and division in your family and in your church as you brush away conflict and let bitterness fester in your soul. We've taken a tour of the wreckage of David's family. And as we see it, the wickedness of humanity, the brokenness of this world, as you look at it, clearly it can crush you if you let it. But the reality of this fallen world, the deep crevices of darkness in this world and among humanity. If you stare at it closely enough, you will implode with its pressure. 
It will lead you to despair and hopelessness. But there is a refuge in the abyss. There is a light in the darkness. There is hope for the hopeless. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to deal with the penalty of our sin on the cross, to rescue us from our sin, to recreate this fallen world, indeed to make all things new. The brokenness that we've experienced in this life simply points to the brokenness that is in each of our hearts. Our hearts need God's grace. And so as we await the day when the risen Christ will come and he will make all things new, I bid you now, in the brokenness of this world, in the brokenness of your sinful heart, come to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Fling yourself in desperate faith upon his mercies. For those who are sinking into the abyss of sin, take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you might help us Lord, we are heavy in heart as you, by your, through your word, have taken us on a tour of incredible evil and wickedness. Lord, we see the need that this world has for redemption. We see the need that we have for redemption. And Lord, we're so grateful that you have sent us a Savior and Messiah in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us, we pray. We pray that those who are in Christ, that they would find safety and refuge in Jesus, even amidst all the brokenness of this fallen world and the suffering and the atrocities that take place. Lord, may they find protection in him. And Lord, may you preserve them and strengthen their faith. But Lord, we do pray for those who are currently swimming in the abyss of sin. Lord, we pray that you might lead them to repentance, bring their dark deeds to the light, May they confess their sin as they are convicted by your word and by your spirit. And Lord, may they repent. May they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior and the hope of the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.